Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Cracking interview for you this week. We're going to be speaking to uh, Noel Whiteman. Uh, he's written a book about poison and toxins in the natural environment, how plants have evolved these deadly mechanisms to protect themselves and how humans have become obsessed with them. It's a fascinating book and he has lots of anecdotes um, and stories about these different plants. So uh, it's going to be a great listen. If you'd like to get in touch with us on the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can tweet us, we're at newstalkscience. We'll get to your comments at the end of the show. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news, and joining me is Dr. Oren Kennedy from RCSI, and double Dr. Lara Dungan, who we have to start off by saying congratulations, because she is now mum for a third time. Yep, and perfect for climate change. Just keep bringing babies into the world, which is great. <laughs> well, it's in fairness, you probably you know probably haven't heard much about it uh, on this program, so I can understand why. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm totally uneducated to it. Yes, no. Little baby Charlie arrived healthy and well, so we're delighted. In all seriousness, though, the very best of luck to you and Charlie. I hope you enjoy every minute of them. Says the nine and 12 year old parent who doesn't have to get them dressed at all. <laughs> oh, it's a dream. It's a dream. I'll tell you, you'll get there. You'll get there. But not for another 11 years. <laughs> oh, Johnny, I don't like you. <laughs> Sorry, smug parent of over nine year olds. All uh, right, let's get into the science news. Um, our first story, Oren, uh, has to do with a mysterious death of numerous elephants uh, and a bit of a whodunit. Yes. So this is a story about elephants, as you say, and unfortunately, it's about a significant number of elephant deaths. And unfortunately, again, it's likely linked to what we were just talking about, the even bigger disaster of climate change that's going on in the background. So it's not the most uplifting story, but interesting and important to to highlight, I think, that stems from a study in Nature Communications uh, by a group, a big uh, consortium group of uh, scientists, researchers, vet vet people, uh, immunologists in Zimbabwe, South Africa, UK, US, and they're interested in this because African elephants, there's 350,000 left on the planet uh, around that. And it's decreasing by 8% per year at the moment. So it's uh, wow. there is a massive disaster impending. And any sort of significant number of deaths, any incident like that is important. And this event that this paper is focused on is in Zimbabwe, where 35 elephants were found to have died. But it's on the back of a much bigger uh, incidents where 300 or so elephants died in Botswana. So uh, it's extra important, and I'll come back to how they're linked uh, in just a minute. But the team found and located and dissected out these um, uh, 30 or so elephants across the plains of northern Zimbabwe. And e- even that's a massive job. They have to locate them out in the wild, you know, the temperatures, doing these dissections of massive animals. Uh, and they didn't find initially uh, evidence of the usual factors, which unbelievably still are poaching, intentional poisoning, things like that. They found that, they, that half of them at least had died from septicemia. So that's blood poisoning. And then they found a bacteria called Bisgard taxon 45 um, had caused the septicemia. And that's unusual because that bug isn't normally found in elephants. And when it is found anywhere else, it doesn't normally cause this serious illness. So the sort right. of the conclusion here is that what the authors think is that these elephants are really stressed out. Uh, it happened that kind of high season. This is in 2020, by the way, a couple of years ago. It took a long time to do this study. Um, they're stressed out. They're walking around. The, the water levels were low. They're hot. And um, uh, the heat, water, food situation, the bugs that are fairly common 
but normally wouldn't cause a problem are suddenly causing a problem by basically overwhelming their uh, immune system, you know? So it's, it's almost like they're sort of struggling in the background and then something that's not that common, or sorry, not that problematic usually can overwhelm them and cause a, a massive response like septicemia and then um, a kind of a group of deaths like this. And that's linked to the other group of animals that died in Botswana for a similar reason. They died by a different bug, but for the same reason, because they were weakened in the first place. So this is a kind of a, I think it's a fairly big story. And this is a big concern for people who are involved in conservation of of these animals, you know. Um, How do they find the causal link between septicemia and this bug if it's not normally something that's created by it? Yeah, so they have these virulence uh, factors. There's a bunch of stuff they take out. Like this is a, it's a massive job to do. They find when you look into the practicalities of it, they have to find these animals, you know, over massive areas of land. A lot of the time, they're basically they've been scavenged. They've been they've been deteriorating in the heat. Yeah. So they 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 find they they find them. They take out the organs that they can that they can access. They do biochemical tests. They do sort of they cut them up and look under a microscope. And there's certain factors where you see a colony of bacteria in a certain organ, let's say in the right. brain or in the liver, and then they see kind of a response nearby. They make the link in that way. Okay, I, I mean, it, is there much that can be done about something like this? I mean, a I vaccine for this bug, or is that just you know throwing wa- you know a cup of water on a blazing inferno? You know, actually, the um, couple of the people involved in this uh, in this study, they're um, they're involved in other uh, um, preventative measures against illnesses in elephants, actually, and they're they're uh, working on a vaccine for right. a different bug, but um, uh, it's it's along the same lines. You know, they're they're working on ways to try and protect these animals because the numbers are declining. I think. You know the, the fact that they're that these elephants were sort of weakened. It's it's a massive problem. It's because of climate change, really. You know, so you can't do much about it on that front. But I suppose uh, on another front, they are working on things like vaccines for for elephants to protect them against things like this. So right, okay, as you say, not the most uplifting a story, but an important one nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, Lara, this is a good story. Uh, it's another uh, bit of proof, I suppose, that breast is best. And as a um, as a newborn mum, I suppose this is a good story for you. Yeah, absolutely. So so I have a two-week-old baby and I'm breastfeeding um, and I've breastfed my other babies. Um, and I do believe that breast is best, um, but obviously, you know, we have to be very, very careful because it's not for everybody. And that's really important to say at the start of this. But there is new research that's been published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, and it's come from Yale School of Medicine. And they've done a really exciting study where they've looked at breast milk from mothers in Mexico, China and the United States. Um, so it goes across a lot of different races. Um, it's independent then in terms of diet. So they've taken people who are having any kind of diet. And like I said, from these range of races, and it's called the Global Exploration of Human Milk Study. And what they did was they looked to see what different um, compounds within the milk are present at different stages. Um, and they previously published on a, a chemical called DHA which they found to improve synaptic connectivity, which means essentially brain connections in the newborn. And they were thinking, look, if this does it, then something else is likely to do it. So they found this sugar called myo-inositol. And they found that it's very, very present early in lactation. But as the infant grows, the amount of it in the milk rapidly uh, reduces. And so they took this out and they put it onto rat neurons in vitro and human neurons in vitro. And what they found was treating these neurons with this sugar increased the brain connectivity. 
So they thought like, this is very interesting. We've done it in vitro. Let's do it in vivo. So they fed this sugar to mouse pups. And again, they found that it increased brain connectivity. So postsynaptic brain connectivity. And they were curious then, we know that this is important in infants and we know it's important in vitro. What happens if we use it in adult brains? So they had sections of adult brains and again, treated them. And again, they found that it increased the connectivity. Now, it's not a completely simple story. It's not the kind of thing that we need to start giving people in their food so that we can increase brain connectivity in adults because it can Is brain connectivity always good? So in general, in an infant, this is how they grow and they modify. So it is extremely important for new connections to be formed. And we know it's coming from breast milk. So this is very exciting. But you're right. You know, it's not as simple as that. And in an adult brain, it's been proven that this uh, overabundance of this could also be a problem. So this isn't going to be as simple as just saying we need to, you know, feed this to people and we can help their brain connectivity. But it is really interesting to see that there are things in breast milk that are clearly affecting children's brains. Um, and it's just really exciting research looking at so much breast milk from such a wide and varied population as well. Mm. Yeah, do you know, we need to do a feature on breast milk because how it changes from colostrum to, you know, the, the later stage milk, all of that, the the how it works with the immune system, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, do you know what? My little guy, um, my, my two-year-old came home with hand, foot and mouth disease last week and I have a two-week-old and obviously we were terrified he'd get it, but he's breastfed and not a problem he is absolutely perfect he didn't get anything and it's actually because his saliva goes back into the breast every time I feed him and then I make better antibodies for him at the next feed it's really just so interesting you definitely need to do an entire show on it right um our third story uh, Oren has to do with muscle strength and I I don't know if other listeners are like me but uh, since I, I turned 45 which is a couple of years ago everyone keeps telling me I need to lift weights and it didn't happen before, and I I don't know I don't know why people keep saying to me, but people from all walks of life are telling my friends, doctors, just people I meet in the street, you should lift some weights. It's really good for you in your fifties. And I really don't want to um, lift weights, but apparently muscle strength becomes an issue as we age, and like it or not, I am aging in some respects. So, what is the story about? Yeah, I'm right there with you. People keep telling me the same thing, and uh, yeah. Reluctance here too, Jonathan. So, um, yeah, so this story is about a new way to prevent muscles from, from deteriorating. And it's uh, it's getting at a kind of a underlying mechanism, so the, the, the physiology of muscles and how they work. So whether muscles deteriorate from an injury, for example, if you get a, a cut that severs a nerve, you know, the associated muscle will stop moving. Um, and there's, there's diseases that have a, a similar effect, multiple sclerosis, or like you said, a, a, a aging can affect muscle, muscle strength. So this work was done by a group in Stanford, uh, collaborating with other groups around California, and they've identified an enzyme. So there's a chemical involved in muscle that underlies the, the, the very common concept, I suppose, of you know, use your muscles to keep them healthy and to make them bigger. So there's a little enzyme in there. It's called 15-hydroxyprostaglandin dehydrogenase. Easy for you 15, to say. 15-PG, but they've given it a snazzier title called the gerozyme. So it's an enzyme, gero for aging and zyme for enzyme. So it's an enzyme that they think is involved in what happens when muscles age. So broadly speaking, after there's been an injury or a problem or aging, it's the neuromuscular junction. That sounds kind of complicated, but it's literally just the point at which, if you if you can imagine, the little electrical signal that goes down from your brain and where that fiber connects into your muscle, that's that's a really important junction. You know, frog experiment from you know back in high school where you put a little bit of current through a frog's muscle and it twitches. That's what the, that's managed by the neuromuscular junction. Right. And this gerozyme accumulates right there after um, a nerve injury. 
So there's this, it's almost like you can imagine it like a scar, I suppose. It's something that accumulates and kind of gets in the way and it stops the muscle from working well. It stops the muscle from um, from repairing. And so they what they've done is they, they generated a small molecule inhibitor. That just means another chemical that blocks the gerozyme. So it blocks it from accumulating. It blocks it from doing what it's doing. And they found that when they did block that after a nerve injury, uh, the muscle improved itself. So uh, the neuromuscular junction improved, the neurons improved, uh, a group kind of grew back, and the muscle function improved also. So they wow. think that this was a sort of a, like I said, it's an underlying mechanism, you call it, you know, how this sort of simple idea of use your muscles or lose it, how that operates. And so they tested it then in aging as well, because the same principle applies. And they gave this, um, uh, this is in a preclinical model now, not of injury, but of just of aging, uh, aging mice and the same same thing happened the the muscle deterioration that you normally see was prevented um, in a in a in a similar way now what we know about evolution is that very few things are um in our bodies uh, and doing nothing um you know even junk dna seems to have a purpose now so um what about these enzymes um why were they accumulating at this site and uh, is it possible that they are useful for something else do we, do we know what they're for or why they accumulate yeah it's a great point because um there's lots of things that seem like they might be bad uh you know but but actually they have a they have a very kind of uh, understandable purpose you know so for example um not quite the same as what we're talking about here but in general like cell death is sounds like it's a bad thing but it's an absolutely crucial component of growth and development so it's really really important to get from like we we're talking about earlier from infant stage growth and development of your body coordinated cell death which sounds bad is absolutely vital for everything to work properly and th- i think this is the same kind of thing where you have uh, a, an enzyme that causes something not to work or to stop working in order to keep things balanced. Right. And then, you know, I, I think, you know, with the evolution point, um, you know, we're living so, so, so much longer over relative to, you know, in evolutionary terms, this is all very, 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 very recent. So it's almost to be expected that some of these things go come a bit of cropper. Uh, when we, when I say age, about the inverted commas here, you know, 40, 50, 60, we were never living, humans were never living that long. Uh, um, all right. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you very much. I get the point. <laughs> we can count ourselves lucky. I'm supposed to be, this is supposed to be a positive point here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Our final story, uh, Lara, has to do with music and on the face of it, it looks like a ridiculous study. I'm, I'm wondering, is there any science in it? Um, what, what is this? Yeah, so it's about music and pain. And I mean, it is a little bit painful to read, but um, there is researchers in the uh, Roy Pain Laboratory at McGill campus in University in Montreal. Um, and they have published a study suggesting that music helps to reduce our perception of pain. Now, this is not the first time. This has long been published. Um, and there's a lot of studies that say that music helps to reduce our, our perception of pain, pain unpleasantness and pain intensity. And what they did was they took 60, three volunteers and they brought them into their pain laboratory and they basically burned their arm they didn't actually burn it but they it was the equivalent of a hot cup of coffee leaning against their their arm and they let them listen to two songs of their own choosing or relaxing music quote unquote or scrambled music or no music. And then they got them to rate the pain intensity and unpleasantness afterwards. And what they found was when they were listening to their own choice of songs, that the pain unpleasantness rated less and the pain intensity rated less. And they also got them to decide whether or not the music gave them chills, which is a bit of a... I suppose an unusual term, it's something we've probably experienced ourselves in the past, but it's the idea of kind of getting goosebumps in relation to a song. And um, Ask a Swifty. 
Yeah, exactly. So when they rated the songs as being higher in, I suppose, the chill factor, they also rated the pain, intensity and unpleasantness as being less. Now, look, I'm I'm not sure about this. What, what they said was it reduced it by four and nine points out of 100 points on a scale. To me, that seemed incredibly minor. I looked up a, a meta-analysis of paracetamol's effect in osteoarthritis in the hip and that was actually only three out of a hundred it reduced it by so I mean you know maybe a small reduction in pain is important having just gone through labor two weeks ago and (laughs) I would not do it without an epidural so I mean I'm, I'm not sure that music would have cut the mustard in that case but they are suggesting that there may be some sort of neurological reason why chills might help to overcome the pain because maybe mm. the the chill is using the pathway that the pain might want to use. I'm not entirely buying into it, but I mean, there is no harm in, in looking for alternative methods other than medication for reducing pain. But we also do need to look at more mainstream things like and, medication. And also I, I like the idea of um, reporting your pain on a hundred point scale. seems kind I of, I, I'm a 75 five right now i'm a 20, i'm a 21 i'm a 21 yeah. like it's it seems to be to be redundant anyway um interesting uh study nonetheless uh thank you so much for joining us dr oren kennedy from rcsi and new mum dr Lara duggan thanks guys now every day we walk past hidden killers each of us without even knowing I'm not talking about people, but plants and animals that harbour extraordinarily dangerous poisons. So says Noel Whiteman. He's a professor of genetics, genomics, evolution and development and director of the Essig Museum of Entomology at UC Berkeley. He's the author of a new book. It's quite remarkable. It's called The Most Delicious Poison, The Story of Nature's Toxins. From Spices Devices, he joins me now. Um, Welcome to the programme, Noah. This is a really unusual book in that uh, it's fascinating um, in how it details uh, toxins and poisons um, and, and, and talks about their effects on our body, but also uh, it, it, it's a very honest account of the death of your father as well. That, that story is sort of woven all the way through the book. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why you wrote the book, please? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your program, Jonathan. It's great to be with you. And I think you um, you summarized it quite well in my mind as, as well. And, you know, my father's uh you know, many decades long battle with alcohol use disorder, which is the modern term for alcoholism, sort of collided with my own research program. Um, And that research program focuses on, you know, sort of thinking about how and why plants in particular produce poisons that they use to defend themselves against enemies. And I was studying this butterfly, the monarch butterfly that uh, sequesters heart poisons from its milkweed host plants to defend itself against enemies. And that, that research was sort of at its zenith right around the time when my father was sort of slipping away and eventually died. And it got me thinking that he was using alcohol in much the same way, actually, to keep away his own demons. And so even though I never imagined, <laughs> in fact, I, I tried keeping these two parts of my life pretty separate, but all of a sudden yeah. they were together and I couldn't, you know, disentangle them. The story uh, starts off with a fantastic episode. Well, I mean, it's fantastic to read. I'm sure it was horrible to go through. But your um, encounter with a hawk in the Galapagos. Tell me a little bit about uh, that piece of research and what exactly it is you were trying to do. Yeah, so um, in the Galapagos, 
we were working with um, an endangered bird um, that's sort of similar to a common buzzard <laughs> uh, in the genus Budio, and it's the top predator, land predator in the Galapagos, the Galapagos hawk. And at the time, I was interested in host parasite interactions, and my advisor, Patty Parker, had been studying uh, this very interesting hawk in the Galapagos because they have an unusual mating system where there's one female and up to eight males in a breeding territory. And I was studying parasites and how they're transmitted between the hawks and that sort of thing. So we needed to capture the hawks unharmed and take the parasites off of them somehow. And I was studying the parasites sort of as um, tracers of the hawks colonization history in the Galapagos. So we were looking at the DNA sequences of the parasites and trying to use them sort of in a forensics investigation to understand the evolutionary relationships among the birds. And in the book I write about to get the lice off of the birds, I need to use uh, you know, a substance called pyrethrum, which comes from chrysanthemums, these members of the daisy family. And so that is how I sort of folded into the book. And again, it's a case where I didn't realize my life intersected with these poisons from plants. <laughs> but it's sort of every stage of my career, when I looked back, I can definitely um, illuminate uh, the importance of these uh, chemicals that plants are producing in my own scientific life. Yeah, and in the book you detail the incident where you you almost lost an eye to this hawk as you were trying to get hold of its um, its feathers to, to study those um, parasites. So um, daisies are an interesting one because uh, most people think of daisies as, as being the most innocuous innocuous of flowers, but it's fair to say that um, there are so many flowers and plants that I hadn't realized harbored toxins, and of course not all of those toxins or poisons are poisonous in, in small amounts to us, but they may be to others. Is it fair to say that anything is a, a toxin or a poison because too much of it will kill you? Or what do you what do you mean when you're talking about toxins in this book? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think the way you framed it is exactly right. So we have to take each of these chemicals on their own terms and ask, you know, you know, who is the intended target from an evolutionary perspective? Um, you know, what what's what organisms selected for the plants to produce those? Um, in other words, what organisms are they most effective in? And we just, if we just look at uh, things like pyrethrum, uh, you know, insects have a mutation in a, in a sort of the same gene that we have that makes them susceptible to pyrethrum, whereas we're not. And we don't have that mutation. So there's one example. Um, and yes, there is a point where you could take enough pyrethrum where it would be toxic, but you would need to do, you know, take more of that than you would uh, table salt for it to become <laughs> toxic. But right. no, I don't think everything is a toxin. And in the book, I sort of use Paracelsus's maxim, which is it's the dose that makes the poison. But at the same time, there are byproducts of our metabolism, like carbon dioxide that's toxic, right? Carbon dioxide, you know, is a way that animals get euthanized. Um, things like oxygen can be toxic at the wrong doses. But the organisms that are producing those, um, including pretty much all organisms are producing carbon dioxide, that is not, um, you know, a defense against natural enemies. And so the way I look at it is to think about what the adaptive value is for the organism that makes them. And that's where we start thinking about, okay, did this evolve as a defense or an offense or to manipulate the animal mind? So I think we have to look at the adaptive sort of value of these things to decide whether they're toxic. And then the simple definition of, of a toxin would be a chemical that damages a cell or prevents it from working. 
And that's, you know, a very basic definition. The poison, it almost is like it has an intent, right? Like poisoner, poison. Mm. <laughs> so when we look at evolution, things seem like they're designed. Of course, they're not. There's no foresight in evolution. But the organisms that selected these traits, you know, that that is where my focus. Can we identify them or at least have a sense of what um, what they were doing to the plant to increase the plant's fitness when it made a toxin? Yeah, you, you kind of talked about um, that they develop these defense mechanisms. And, and that, you know, it's important to kind of make that point when we talk about evolution that um, there's no intention there that actually it, it, they, the ones that ha- harbor this poison and were able to, d- to deter um, their uh, predators were the ones that survived and retained these sort of traits. But um, I'm wondering, is that always the case? Does a poison or a toxin always develop in um, a plant or an animal as a result of a threat? Or are sometimes these um, toxins not explained as well? Are they potentially byproducts um, of of the evolution of that poison or, or toxin for something else? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy for hundreds of years, really, over what these strange chemicals are in plants, because all plants make the same set of basic um, primary chemicals to kind of build uh, what it what it is to be a plant. (laughs) So things like sugars, amino acids, lipids. And so whether it's a redwood in the California coastal forests, or a strawberry tree in Ireland, (laughs) they are all making, you know, the same sets of chemicals uh, that are used to build cells. And the interesting thing is that then they make this other set uh, of chemicals that are not used directly to grow or to put in seeds or anything like that. And there was a hypothesis that these were sort of byproducts of the more complex metabolism that plants have because they have a chloroplast. We don't have that, for example. So that allows them sort of access to another compartment in which they can do chemical reactions that we cannot do. But it turns out that, you know, yes, you're right. There are many chemicals that plants make that aren't necessarily defenses that are also strange, but they might be used for other sort of um, adaptive reasons. Um, And so, and other times, um, chemicals that maybe evolved as signaling molecules within or between cells get co-opted by natural selection and increased in their concentration and serve as toxins. And one example there is this compound called salicylic acid, which inspired aspirin, which is acetyl salicylic acid. And all plants make salicylic acid as a signaling molecule. But then some, like willows, produce very high levels. And the willow is where um, the first sort of real encounter with salicylins and uh, sort of salicylates and salicylin and salicylic acid as sort of um, an anti-fever molecule. And that was the basis for the development of aspirin. So that's an example of a road that a compound took that probably didn't initially start out as a direct defense, but ended up being that way because it happens to be bitter and at higher concentrations toxic to insects. Uh, speaking about painkillers, um, there are many of those, and you actually detail a good few of them in your book, uh, opioids, for example, and and even the the, the mandrake. When we think of, of traditional painkillers like opioids, for example, are, are they to- would they be considered as toxins? Yes, well, we have to sort of do the experiment and ask, you know, if you give an organism um, sort of a taste test and put some morphine in there, what would it do? And virtually every organism, whether it's a rat, um, a cat, a, a fruit fly, 
or a person would reject it. They would not imbibe it. And so there's a there's an averse aversive taste. Many toxins are bitter. Not all bitter things are toxic. Um, there's a there's a you know much wider range of things that are bitter than are than are toxic. But at the same time, uh, morphine does and morphine and alkaloids more generally, which are made by the opium poppy. And there's evidence that our brains make small amounts of morphine as well, which is kind of mind blowing. And I'm not talking about the endorphins, the peptides that are the anti sort of pain uh, molecules. Um, and but plants making morphine and alkaloids, are they a defense? Well, they're in the latex, um, which is that milky sap that plants use to protect themselves from enemies. So there's a hint that it's a defensive role. Like milkweed? Yes, exactly. Different? Like like milkweed, right. like the uh, rubber tree that we get rubber from, you know, that is simply latex, which are, you know, chains of isoprene molecules linked together. But often there are these toxins in the latex of different plant species that, that make latex. And just as you said, the cardiac glycoside heart poisons are found in milkweeds latex. And then the morphine is found in, in the poppies. And it does look like um, bismorphine, which is a breakdown product of morphine, strengthens plant cells, may prevent bacteria from invading. So it's not just the herbivores, it's you know all the other natural enemies that may have selected for these things. But yes, that's a really... Um, that's a really interesting one because, you know, we would have to do things like knock the genes out that uh, produce uh, the enzymes or encode the enzymes that produce morphine to see do those plants have lower fitness in the presence of herbivores to really test that idea. You detail spices uh, as well in, in the book, and I was surprised to see them in, in the category of toxins. Um, but I suppose when you think about chili um, and its properties, that would certainly stand out. Uh, wh why are spices um, lumped in with these toxins and poisons that you list in the book? Well, I think you have to take the perspective of a little insect uh, or a fungus <laughs> that is infecting a plant. And if you look at the structure of a lot of the um, primary sort of biologically active chemicals in many of the spices that we use, um, they're like some of the other um, chemicals that we were talking about. They're also toxic to these small creatures um, at doses, right, that are, that are sort of found in um, the parts of the plants that are making the spices. So, for example, cinnamon, um, which, you know, uh, comes from Asia, that's uh, the comp uh, several compounds that, that make cinnamon taste the way it does. And one is called cinnamaldehyde. And, you know, that is pretty toxic to insects. That's found in the bark of the trees, the cinnamonium trees that make that. And so that's one example. But there's others that we've studied in our lab called thymol that's in thyme. That's just this terpenoid that you and I would, would like the smell and taste of. But it turns out to be a GABA receptor um, it targets the GABA receptor and that causes the insects that might imbibe it to uh, kind of be screwed up neurologically. So it's a natural insecticide in that way. One of the questions that struck me uh, in the book is that there are lots of uh, unfortunate ways to die in this book. Um, but which of the natural toxins or poisons that you studied would you consider to be the most toxic to humans? It's not necessarily I, one I study, but one that I know about. And it's sort of ironic because it's also used as a cosmetic. And that is <laughs> the <laughs> protein toxin that is in Botox. If, you, if you've heard of Botox, I'm sure there are billions of dollars uh, spent on Botox. 
and that comes from a bacterium um, and that is a very very toxic molecule uh, protein and so that probably takes the cake I would say the other one um, is tetrodotoxin which you probably heard about that's found in many animals actually that live in the ocean like uh, blue ringed octopuses uh, puffer fish it's also found in salamanders in the skin of some salamanders that are called newts and um, in fact it's so toxic there is a report in the medical literature of a man um, dying um, in the Pacific Northwest because on a dare he swallowed a newt that he found and he had been drinking and he he was he died from eating a newt so um, oh my god yeah which is terrible for him and his family and you know when you think about Shakespeare writing about <laughs> <laughs> putting things in a cauldron right at the, the yeah. in Macbeth. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean, well, you know, it, it, it's some of those laws really seem to be to hold true because Mandrake, Mandrake is, was, was Mandrake yes. um, mentioned yes. by Shakespeare? Well, the title of the book, Most Delicious Poison, comes from Anthony and Cleopatra, one of his plays. And oh, right. she describes the Mandrake as most delicious poison because she instructs her handmaiden Charmian to bring her the mandrake tonic to sleep away Anthony's absence because she misses him so much. She's in love and she wants to just fall asleep and forget about it all. So she knows right. that the mandrake has the ability to be a soporific and that those compounds in the mandrake, including hiscosine, are still used um, as drugs. In fact, hiscosine is used uh, to deal with motion sickness, but it has this soporific effect and Clearly, Shakespeare knew about it because it was was used um, all over Europe um, for lots of different reasons. And there are cases, however, where it seems like some of these toxins may have unintended benefits in in the case of cassava, for example. Yes, that's right. So there's a chapter where I talk about sort of food as medicine and how that has interwoven into the uh, human experience and Fava beans um, are one of my favorite um, types of beans. They're nutty, buttery, delicious. But if I had the most common enzyme genetic uh, enzyme deficiency in humans called um, G6PD, I would have had a very bad reaction to eating fava beans. People who have mutations in the G6PD gene, which encodes an enzyme that's very important in creating molecules that are used by our cells as antioxidants. When people have that deficiency, it means they can't really process these alkaloids that are in fava beans. And so what happens is the red blood cells actually um, start dying and get taken up by the spleen. And so it can cause anemia uh, when people are eating fava beans and have this G6PD deficiency. What's really interesting though, is that people who have this particular deficiency also have resistance to malaria. And this has been known for a long time. And it's thought that the areas where this, this mutation is at higher frequency around the world is in areas where there are people who eat a lot of fava or broad beans. So there's a, this idea is that there's a synergy between our diet and our genetics in mediating malaria resistance. And that's something that could be damaging in the absence of malaria actually benefits us in the presence of it, which is how evolution works. It's always context dependent, what an adaptation is or is not. 
And um, Fatima Jackson has this idea that cassava, which um, is also called yuca, that originated in South America, produces cyanide as a defense. And it's possible that cyanide also, in the blood at low levels, at very low levels, can be a sort of anti-malarial factor. And so the question is whether it's like fava beans. And the link there is that sickle cell trait um, is also an independent way that humans have adapted to malaria. So people who have a sickle cell trait are more resistant to malaria. And it's possible that the cyanide sort of desickles those cells and has an anti-malarial sort of component as well. So there's a synergy wow. possibly between our diet, our genetics, and these diseases that involve plant toxins. One of the things you finish off with in the book at NOAA is this um, idea that our pursuit, humans' uh, pursuit of these toxins for pleasure and for for food has had an enormous effect on um, geopolitics. Yes, yeah, so these strange molecules that plants are making that we seem to be obsessed with from the 15th century to now uh, have maybe led to a series of dominoes falling the, from the beginning of the sort of age of European exploration in quotes, which led to uh, landing in Asia in search of Christians and spices in the case of Vasco da Gama, all the way to the Opium War, which was a war between Britain and China, really over caffeine and opium that eventually led to things like the opioid epidemic in the United States and even the geopolitical situation here possibly. So we might be able to look at all of these events through the lens of our pursuit, our, our sort of obsession with these plant poisons or things that are like them that are synthetic that we, that we make. The book is called Most Delicious Poison, The Story of Nature's Toxins from Spices to Vices. And it is a really interesting read because it is so personal and honest. And at the same time, there's lots of really fascinating bits of history and anecdotes about these different plants that you'll look at completely differently once you've read the book. The author is Noah Whiteman. Noah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. And thanks to your listeners. I have to say, I really enjoyed that book. There was lots of anecdotes in it, uh, great personal stories, um, some of which are really amazing, and then lots of great science too. All right, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And if you remember, we were speaking to Dr. Tiffany Slater. She's a paleobiologist at UCC, and she was looking at uh, the preservation of pigments uh, in animals and in feathers. And the idea is that um, there's new techniques now being developed where you can uh, be able to tell uh, the presence uh, of uh, this ginger pigment, and it might help you understand the colouring of, of a particular animal in question, which is, is kind of interesting because... Um, of course, all dinosaurs that we see in modern colouring books and children's books and even adults' books, they're coloured almost um, on a whim because we have no idea what some of these animals were because pigment isn't very well preserved. Um, we had two emails in from Kevin. Uh, the first uh, says, what a, what a waste of public money this is, analysing what colours dinosaur were, dinosaurs were. And then the other says, all you people are working from the presupposition that things evolved. But where is the proof for evolution? Science works by observable data con constantly repeated. If you apply that to, to the contemporary brief in evolution, how is that going to work? Well, first off, on the public money thing, um, the pursuit of knowledge, I think, is a good thing for people in general. Um, and just understanding our world, in this case, understanding what color animals that lived on the planet before us were. Um, 
there's lots of different applications to that, but even just the pursuit of knowledge itself um, leads us to develop new tools, new um, skills, new technologies, new materials that often bleed into other disciplines, sometimes medicine, sometimes space exploration, sometimes construction and so on. And so just studying something deeply has lots of benefits beyond knowing the thing. Um, so I, I, I sort of refute that it's a, a waste of public money. I don't think any study is a waste of public money if it's done well and and it's not repeating something that's been well established and then um with the question of evolution i mean kevin the idea that evolution is still a theory is just a misunderstanding of how science work i think uh, works i think we have both tested and seen uh, evolution in in real time we can uh, influence in a habitat of say for example a zebrafish and see over a number of uh, uh, evolutions of, of generations we can see how um that uh, the dna of of these animals can change same with um uh, smaller animals like worms and and, and bacteria even uh, so the there is, is is living and observable proof that evolution is a thing and also we can see by looking at animals uh, and how uh, their their dna and their 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 bodies have changed through time so it's not a difficult thing for us to do we can make predictions and see those predictions come to pass so evolution uh, doesn't need to be proved it has been proved proven um and so that's not really up for debate uh, kevin although the color of animals uh, 100 million years ago absolutely is. Um, we were also talking about free wills. Um, we spoke to Professor Kevin Mitchell from Trinity College Dublin, who uh, was trying to convince me that uh, free will does exist and we're not just automatons following um, uh, sort of lines of code stored in our brain. Um, Jill says, surely past experience uh, influence our current decision-making. They do, Jill, but I guess... Um, what Kevin is saying is that uh, we can't just run everything down to I did I heard this so I did that uh, and that there is a conscious decision making in the brain. Mark says, does this not all boil down to what we believe to be the boundaries of biological functions in the body? At what point can we say here free will begins and biological and chemical processes developed over millennia stops? Um, well. I think that's kind of um, one of the arguments that Kevin was saying, that that is difficult to kind of pinpoint something like this. This is an extremely complex system, but it's, it's, it's really, um, it's reducing things to, uh, to an unfair level to suggest that, um, that we are just um, working from stimuli and we don't have any sense of consciousness considering the evidence for it. And someone else says notions of free will and freedom to choose in general went out the door when our four-month-old daughter was born. <laughs> I know exactly how you feel. Congratulations. It does get easier, as I said at the beginning of the program. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Hope you enjoyed the program. Thanks to Simon Keane and Marisa Sullivan, Steve Daunt, John Byrne, and Hugo da Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.